I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I Welcome to another salty episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we explore the unreliable seas of young adult fiction. In our travels, we seek tomes old and new, either to be ensorcelled by their literary genius or dragged to the dark depths of despair by bollocks like Twilight. This episode, some of us, with mighty reverence, have dusted off treasured copies of Ursula Le Guin's classic, Let me say that more strongly. World-renowned, critically acclaimed, cult classic, A Wizard of Earthsea. Did you mean acclaimed? Maybe. (laughs) Didn't I say that? Did you say cult? (laughs) Yeah. Shut up. I don't understand what's going (laughs) on. An actual classic, not a cult classic. Ah, well, true. The un... Maybe occult classic. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) The unnumbered remainder appear to have stopped swearing at their Kindle copy and have joined us for a good old-fashioned brog-bashing style episode. Too early to speculate? Well, you shall see. <laughs> <laughs> if, if oh, this I is love blog. Brog, whatever. Blog. <laughs> oh, blog. <laughs> but blog is the, the 21st century reboot. <laughs> if this is your first episode and potentially your last, then let me wholeheartedly recommend the Red Wall series by Brian Jakes <laughs> and introduce us. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the handsome Keith Rowe. Hello, and lovely introduction. Thank you. You sounded taken aback for a moment there. There was like quite a long pause <laughs> as you considered whether that was going to be followed by some insults or <laughs> well, handsomely repugnant. For one of us. The dashing Brie. Hello. And the hideously scarred but lovely of voice, Patrick Moon. I could sense that coming a mile away. (laughs) Before the mighty winds of opinion smash this rocky boat into oblivion, a warning. If you don't want to have a book that plays true to what your expectation of a coming-of-age fantasy novel written in the 60s entails, then may I suggest that you spend your time more wisely and read Harry Potter. Between the time when Segoy brought forth the islands from the oceans and the rise of madness through the lands, there was a story untold. And unto this Sparrowhawk destined to rise as the greatest voyager Earthsea had ever seen. It is us, his chroniclers, who alone can tell thee of this saga. Let us tell you of the days of high adventure. What was that? (laughs) I love it. I got a little bit of a stirring in my loins. (laughs) Wait till I add the music to the record. Are we going to have to add, uh, do we need to put an explicit tag on the podcast for this one if there's going to be loin stirring going on? There's a bit more of that coming up. Is um, there, just? Thank you, Keith. <laughs> I will say this extra bit, Keith. 
Patrick, you begged, weeping almost, like a three-year-old that's tired, hungry, but doesn't want to leave the playground after a mere four hours of play, to please, please let me read page one. <laughs> well, well, Bree has kindly deferred. Remember that this is one of the greatest books of all time. Don't fuck it up. No, seriously, you guys would have loved my sarcastic <laughs> rendition of page one. Sorry. Homage. My homage. All I did was I said, I would like to read page one. May I please read page one? I, I don't think there was any three-year-old in the in the park about it whatsoever. <laughs> we could hear so, the glistening in your much. keystrokes, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and Bree, shouldn't it be homage? Homage. <laughs> oh, nice pun. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank thank you for um, allowing me to step in and foregoing your opportunity to eviscerate a classic of the magical English language, Brie. <laughs> With my nasal overtones. <laughs> I was thinking about a more explicit kind of evisceration. <laughs> in any event. Warriors in the Mist The island of Gaunt, a single mountain that lifts its peak a mile above the storm-wracked northeast sea, is a land famous for wizards. From the towns in its high valleys and the ports on its dark, narrow bays, many a Gauntishman has gone forth to serve the lords of the archipelago in their cities as wizard or mage, or, looking for adventure, to wander working magic from isle to isle of all Earthsea. Of these, some say the greatest, and surely the greatest voyager, was the man called Sparrowhawk, who in his day became both dragonlord and archmage. His life is told of in the deed of Ged and in many songs, but this is a tale of the time before his fame, before the songs were made. He was born in a lonely village called Ten Alders, high on the mountain at the head of the northward vale. Below the village, the pastures and ploughlands of the vale slope downward, level below level towards the sea, and other towns lie on the bends of the river Ar. Above the village, only forest rises, ridge behind ridge, to the stone and snow of the heights. The name he bore as a child, Juni, was given him by his mother, and that and his life were all she could give him, for she died before he was a year old. His father, the bronze smith of the village, was a grim, unspeaking man, and since Juni's six brothers were older than he by many years and went one by one from home to farm the land or sail the sea or work as smith in other towns of the northward vale, there was no one to bring the child up in tenderness. He grew wild, a thriving weed, a tall, quick boy, loud and proud and full of temper. With the few other children of the village he herded goats on the steep meadows above the river springs, and when he was strong enough to push and pull the long bellow sleeves, his father made him work as smith's boy at a high cost in blows and whippings. There was not much work to be got out of Dooney. He was always off and away, roaming deep in the forest, swimming in the pools of the river Ar, that, like all Gauntish rivers, ran very quick and cold, or climbing by cliff and scarp to the heights above the forest, from which he could see the sea, that broad northern ocean where... Past Perigal, no islands are. <sighs> Woof. What a treat. I finally get it. Is it really pronounced mage? It is I've really always pronounced... pronounced it marsh. Oh, God. We've had this conversation on this same podcast. <laughs> we have this yeah. podcast that we do <laughs> that you are present at every week, the exact yes. same conversation. 
Are you are you pulling our chain? She must be. Not on this occasion. (laughs) Clearly a slow learner, (laughs) or not that interested in the material, and I make space for other things in my brain. (laughs) Sort of Sherlockian there, just sort of pushing (laughs) pushing one thing out to make space for another. Yeah, well, mage homage. I mean. I envy the amount of education you must be ongoing, uh, taking on a daily basis that that has already been pushed out. Well, we had the conversation not that long ago. Anyway, this has provided a nice, you know, segue into my comments on the book, right? (laughs) Do you want to finish and tell us what you thought of page one in particular, Brie? Actually, to be frank, I think this was a pretty good start. I thought that it actually set up the world quite nicely. I was quite interested to read about this kid and to try and see where he was going to develop into. What about you, Laurie? (sighs) What a treat. Doesn't get much better than that, I reckon. I don't know if the dizziness that I feel is from the sheer awe of the word smithery or from the engorgement of my... Stop it. Swelling heart. (laughs) I love it. I hadn't recalled when reading it for the second time, like the first time I read it was when I was very young, I hadn't recalled that the poor sod's name was Dunny, though. (laughs) (laughs) Non-Australians born this side of Croc Dundee might not know what a Dunny is. It's what we Aussies call a toilet, usually of the small outdoor unplumbed shack over a stinking pit. Variety, so I had to giggle at the shit name a little bit, <laughs> but that's just a local peculiarity. I think it's very, very promising. It's still missing a bit of a hook, though. No, it's not. Nah, you're quantifiably incorrect. <laughs> There's no mention of magic or anything to kind of an, an activity or an action six that mentions brings you of in. magic in that page alone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> again, short term memory. <laughs> He was the archmage, the the dragon something or other, who wandered from place to place doing magic and. But we don't sorts. know that the kids like that, do we? And no, he, it tells you that he grows up to be the the archmage. Yeah, that I did like that part of it. All right, maybe I should read it. And, and you should get a lot of coming of age sort of fantasy books where they never explicitly say he's going to become this amazing wizard. Whereas here, you know the kind of destination the book's heading for. It's how you're going to get there that's of interest. It was good. Well, I don't think it's forgettable on the first page, like at the end of the reading of a first page. I did forget about it later on, I'm sure, when I was younger as well. Like I kind of forgot in the midst of peril that, oh, it's all right, okay, he's going to be the archmage. But, yeah, it is different, isn't it? Yeah, you do know that with every book, basically, but you're right. There's those moments still when it's good and when you're caught in the moment where you're wondering, oh, is it going to be a good ending here? It's sort of implicit in any book like this that the main character is going to be the grand hero who achieves wonderful things and takes up the mantle of the greatest wizard in all the universe. Right. I'd kind of like to see a book, and I don't know if it exists, about someone who is just completely irrevocably normal and and caught up in the wake of people who are doing grander things than they are themselves. Uh, it must be out there. Yeah, there is a book. Yeah, there is. Oh, what is it called? It's it's about normal people in a world of superheroes. Muggles. The name escapes me. <laughs> <laughs> Muggles, the novel. <laughs> I think I put it on the list. <laughs> I'd really be keen to, to read something like that. There's another book which isn't quite how Keith is describing it. It's where the lead character is just a real bastard. Someone was telling me about it. Is it The Lies of Locke Lamora or something maybe? 
I'm no, sure. I think we did it. It's that one-handed prick. <laughs> <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> yeah, jump back into our back catalog and look for that one. <laughs> what was his name? Uh, oh, was, Yavi. Um, Yavi. Yavi. <laughs> What was it? What was it called? Half a king. Yeah, half a king. Yeah. <laughs> How many hands did he have? I've forgotten. <laughs> uh, the second book of that series was a real cracker. Much better than the no. First. Uh, you haven't read the second one. It was really good. And I started reading it, and then I was like, I remember Agent Yami. <laughs> no, nah, he barely features in the second one. It's all about this strong female protagonist. But anyway. Similarly, I liked the first page. I was very invested invested in it from the get-go. And Ursula Le Guin's writing is just something else. And the reason that I wanted to pinch this one is because it uh, was the book that my primary school library teacher read aloud to us when I was growing up. And so I have such fond memories of that first page. And I can't credit it with kindling my love of reading and of fantasy because I think that was already pretty well established at that point. But it was definitely a, a milestone to me arriving here where I'm talking to you folk about books and frequently fantasy books on the reg. So my love for that first page and for the rest of this book is very difficult to assail. <laughs> what did you think, Keith? It was good to see them foretell where he was going without having that fate tension along the way. It was good. The writing is excellent and I was cast straight into the world and I wanted to read more because it cast me back to when I first read this all those years ago and I was taken back to being a a young, probably 10, 11, 12-year-old, whatever I was at the time. It was great. Listen, Pat, page one is just the crack in a doorway whose edges shine with radiant light. Can you illuminate us on what comes next? Well, if you're uh, Brie, I imagine it's the fluorescent light of a a toilet block. (laughs) (laughs) For the rest of us, uh, in Ursula Le Guin's 1968 classic, the eponymous Wizard of Earthsea is Duny, Dunai, Dunny, I don't know, nicknamed Sparrowhawk. Go with Dunny, it's appropriate. (laughs) Nicknamed Sparrowhawk for his affinity with the birds and who we come to know by his true name, Ged. Uh, So are you sufficiently confused yet? Ged is born with some innate talent for magic and learns the trade of the village witch in his early life. His tricks come in handy when he saves his small village from raiders by cloaking it in fog. He wishes only to foster his knack for Copperfield-esque antics and is apprentice to the wizard Ogion. Ged, however, is too big for his boots and after some shenanigans departs for Hogwarts or the Isle of Roke, where young wizards learn their trade. Unfortunately, he remains too big for his boots and almost kills himself and his classmates by summoning a shadow fiend. Ged is brutalised and humbled by the beast, and we follow his story as he attempts to save himself from his hubris. Along the way, he is taunted by illusion, harangued by dragons, and must ultimately confront the shadow of his own conjuration. Jed or Ged? It's Ged. Ged. Right. I've been saying Jed along in my head. (laughs) You should have listened to my trivia all those many, many, many episodes ago. Did you do a trivia of the pronunciation of Ged back in the day? Oh, I did a a trivia question about who who the lead character was and Ah. Hmm. the answer I think I discussed the pronunciation. Hmm. I can take this moment to illuminate us all on what the title of that book I was thinking of is. It was The Rest of Us Just Live Here and it's by Patrick Ness who wrote Obstacles. 
I think that DVD is well and truly out now, so we should, I should watch it. Has the Earthsea been made into a show? It has been. I, Television I, series, I think. I remember mm. um, Ursula Le Guin was quite scathing about it. It, if I if I remember right, because I think they they sort of whitewashed it. In Earthsea, the characters are, are generally darker skin toned to uh, to black characters, and I think uh, with a, with a few exceptions. And I think the TV show went with the traditional fantasy portrayal of white folks all round, white and, white uh, men. Yeah, and Ursula was less than impressed from from recollection. There was Is a, that the Studio Ghibli one? <clears throat> no, I think that came later. And okay. it was considered the, one of the worst of the Ghibli movies. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that could be still okay. That's true, that's true. Yes, that's an excellent coverage, I think, of the plot, Pat. Thanks. Keith? Mate, this bounteous gift was yours. Yes. I, I almost ask not why, but why not sooner? Ask yourself the same question. Valid point, Ebery. Mm. Yeah, setting aside the fact that you just introduced me, Laurie, you'd be forgiven for thinking, why is Keith talking now? Surely this was chosen by Laurie or Pat. <laughs> but actually, this is one of the first books that I added to our list of titles for the podcast way back when, because it fits so well into the ideals of Seeking Tumness. It was a long while ago that I last read it, and it was actually proper-ish young adult content. Technically, it's something called Bildungsroman, which is kind of like a retrospective coming of age that takes place over a longer period of time, but that's nothing to do with why I chose it. So this was the first pure fantasy novel that I read, apart from this fantasy game book, which I wish I could remember the title of. Is it Fighting Fantasy? No, it was one of those game books, you know, the where you roll a die. Yeah, there's, there's Fighting Fantasy and Grail Quest are the two popular ones. Anyway, go on. Not relevant. <laughs> I was helping him out. <laughs> uh, if, we, if we contained this to purely relevant information, we'd do the podcast in five minutes every episode. Right. We'd be up to episode 600 by now. Brevity is not our strong point. <laughs> no. <laughs> So this was the first pure fantasy novel I read and it was so strikingly different to anything I'd read before it. Firstly, it was a fictional place, but the language and descriptions were so sincere and so engaging that they carried a real sense of grandeur and importance. I was a little cautious about rereading it though because we've done quite a bit of fantasy on here on the podcast and I was a little concerned that the hands of time may have staled this content. I mean, it was published 50 years ago now, so it's only natural that it would age a bit, right? In the end, though, it was ultimately Ursula Le Guin's recent passing that prompted me to finally select this book. And here we are. Bree, hmm. what did you think of it? <laughs> Should we start with Bree? <laughs> I, guess, I guess this is a good place to I'll start. I'll try and keep it brief because I think that I will be a counterpoint to the rest of you, it sounds like. I thought Keith might have been on my side. No, I really liked the world, like I said. So the first chapter or two when you're introduced to Ged, Ged. Ged um, and describing his youth and the relationship with his aunt and with his father and within the village, the way that he discovers almost by feel or by natural ability his strength and his power, his ability to 
protect his village from invaders. The descriptions of his island of Gaunt and the waterfall and the arrival of Ogian or Ogian, his future master. I think all of that is beautifully portrayed and really well developed and it's a really nicely thought out world in which to set the novel. And then I just feel like that for the next I don't know. Let, that's, let's say that's the first 5%. So for the next 85%, we are on this journey of wooden character <laughs> traipsing about from island to island, spending a heck of a lot of time on a boat searching for uh, something. He actually has some really nice character development at the start and some really nice character development at the end and a whole lot of the same thing happening over and over right the way through. Does anybody want to say anything different to that while I search through my notes? Oh, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Calm down, boys. If I was an educated man and knew anything uh, specific about the hero's journey, I would say that's exactly what happened. Like he has some kind of power or natural skill or something and he uses that but it goes wrong and then it, so he peaks downwards, but then he develops his power at the school and becomes really powerful and is set to become the chosen one and then Fs up again and then seeks redemption. I think it was a pretty classic hero's journey and I didn't think it was repetitive. It was that sort of natural build-up into a couple of peaks. I'm not sure that he did show himself redemption. He really didn't hmm. grow that much. He just kind of shriveled away from the world. And then... In- And the other thing that I think is that I actually just didn't care about his journey or about him. There wasn't like a spark of something that kept me coming back to the character that made me kind of want to barrack for him or support him along the way. I was much more enamoured with that little rat creature. Yeah, what about when those bastards killed the little rat? Yeah, that was the most (laughs) like exciting thing to happen to Jed and it wasn't actually about him, it was about the rat. Yeah, but then you want... Yeah, and the bastards, wasn't it the, uh, the Gebeth that killed the rat? The, was not a rat, the Otak. Remember. The shadow creature, yeah, mm. the The other thing is that I actually ended up wanting to know more about those two abandoned ex-prince, princess-type people abandoned on a lonely island. I wanted to know more about their backstory than just Ged abandoning them on an island. Read on. (laughs) Oh, really? Is that covered in some of the latter books? I think it describes in this book that it's covered in some of the latter books. I think it says he he wouldn't uh, find out more about it until he visited the the tombs of Atruan or whatever it Mm. is, which is the... The next book, I believe. And that was like a clickable link. You could go straight to the store. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there was a few points like that, actually, where it brushed past some characters and it was like, that's a story for another time, almost. Mm, and I kept thinking that about Yarrow as well. So one of the very few, let me just put that in there, very few female characters with anything that vaguely resembles something interesting that you could actually take. And that's another thing that I think annoyed me about this is that where there are women in the world it's fairly typical so they're you know there's a female witch and female witches are portrayed as lesser or less important or less powerful or less capable maybe you're about to tell me that in later novels there is a school for witches as well to sort of support that but yeah they all speak french and wear sexy blue uniforms (laughs) (laughs) i refer you to the spoiler I also had to keep reminding myself to slow down and stop skimming the book because there's a there's a little passage that I highlighted at location 2517 that was they went on and on and on and that's basically what I felt about the boat stuff. 
I compare this a little bit, I think, to Robin Hobb, which is a fantasy that I've recently read and enjoyed. And she uses character development to drive something interesting in into some of the what I call the dull ship boring what's that the live traders that sort of series at least you've got some really interesting character development not just of the main characters but also some of those supporting ones to actually carry the story along when it gets very repetitive along the middle vetch for example he appears reasonably early on he appears right towards the end but he's really the same character there's sort of no nuance or development there which i think is a real disappointment yeah i agree with you on that point actually the Supporting characters weren't fleshed out to any large degree. I wonder mm. whether that's just down to the length of the book, though. Yeah, and I also thought Vetch was a like a foundation for for Ged. Ged had a fairly swift ascension to power and a troubled childhood, and Vetch was one of the first friends. In fact, I'm going to get Patrick to read something a bit later about Vetch, and Vetch's power was not in his innate abilities, which I think were, as far as sorcerers go, fairly stock standard, but like his true power was in his friendship, the spirit of his, his personality. Of- yeah, and that is something that Sparrowhawk really needed as a character, something to maybe not model his behaviour on, but provide an alternate behavior model to who was the other guy the real jerk at the university at the school jasper yeah yeah it's not all bad in the world there's something good in the world and at the very end of the story they're right next to each other and i I found that quite quaint (laughs) i mean it was very ged centric which it tells you up front this is the story of how he came to be so it's kind of expected but I, i do think it's still a valid point from brie yeah, definitely. The the cast of female characters isn't particularly strong in this one, which I, is probably unusual uh, for Ursula Le Guin, I would say. I haven't read widely of her work more to my shame, but she's pretty well-renowned as one of the greatest feminist writers of science fiction and fantasy. And so certainly in some of her other books, like Left Hand of Darkness, uh, she delves those themes a little bit more deeply but I'd be interested to see where the, the rest of the SC quartet goes as well in uh, in that vein but it is a very ged centric book and even the the scenes on the boat which you kind of found interminable Brie I thought were almost meditative it's kind of nice just watching ged progress through the world working his magic and the the gradual sense of determination that builds up within him as he continues on his journey and uh, sailing his boat off the edge of the world, essentially. I, I enjoyed that. I was interested to read more about those cultures and the places and the people that he visited or he came across along the way. I think maybe that's just setting up the world for a series of, I don't know, a dozen novels or something a la Game of Thrones. But I just felt like it was this dip in, dip straight back out, dip in, dip straight back out for no purpose. It didn't really add significant amounts to his story, which is why it kind of felt interminable, I guess, as you put it. Yeah, but there can only be so much detail when you're working with a novel that is, what, what is it, 120 pages? So long. Much. It really it's is. It felt so maybe. long. Yeah. It's, uh, is it really not that long? God. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, pretty, it's pretty brief. It's one of the shorter ones we've read. It took me a long time. I think I read, read it, it in three train trips. <laughs> Seriously, I read it in like three weeks. You've, you guys have developed me into a fantasy reader. Like I have actually picked up the sequel to Sabriel, despite not loving Sabriel itself. But I just 
Oh. And the Ranger's Apprentice too. You're, and the Ranger's are, Apprentice. You are essentially the Ranger's Apprentice at yeah. this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, see? And you're reading right. something else at the moment. I used you as a testing ground for, is it A Darker Shade of Magic? Yeah, I really liked the first one. So oh. like I said, you know, I've come a long way, but this one is just too far. Maybe it's because mm. um, it's written 50 years ago and to me as a new reader of fantasy, being able to appreciate something, it's just, the world that I live in has moved on so far past it. I don't have that emotional pull to it that you three may have having read it. Well, Patrick, you're a bit younger, but for the rest of you, what, 30, 40 years ago? 40 years ago. I wasn't even a twinkle in my dad's eye then. <laughs> Sink the knife in deeper, Brie. <laughs> Not only that, I am the oldest of the four, so. <laughs> it's yeah, probably 25 years ago, something like that. Still. So that's what I thought. Fair enough. Yeah, I think there's some valid valid issues you've, you've had with the book there. And I, I liked your comment, Pat, about uh, Ged moving into almost like this meditative state because I found I had to be in the right mood to really get into and really enjoy the book to the fullest degree. And it was like reaching a Zen state when you got to that. And it was kind of like you were just there with Ged alone in some of those scenes and his own internal struggles. It was really good. Uh, I liked the way that the magic was so well integrated into the world. There was a large and varied scale of understanding and mastery of magic, but it was accessible to everyone in a way that to me seems uncommon in this type of fantasy. Is that true? Fantasy buffs? To an extent, I think. There, there seemed to be a lot of accessibility to magic just by virtue of the names of people and places and, and things, and that, which is a fairly common fantasy trope now and I don't know if it was then when Le Guin was writing this one but that idea that you to know something's name is to have power over it which I guess uh, lends itself to magic being a bit more commonplace or accessible to, to everybody although it seems like you need some sort of talent or adeptness to go with that that ability to name yeah, because there was a sort of untalented practices of magic you could get by with a bit of an illusion or mm. weather spells and things like that that were commonly used by everyone. Mm, but magic was sort of a trade, like the local farrier or blacksmith. There would also be the local wizard or witch who would ply their, their trade to the, the village. Yeah, exactly. Laurie, you going to say something? As a modern analogy, there's people that can, I don't know, uh, install a antivirus software on their parents' computer to try and stop them from getting viruses. And that's like the the local blacksmith-type mage. And then there's the people that can develop applications or whatever, like the real experts. (laughs) Yeah. Well, aren't you quite developed then? (laughs) I like that analogy. It's a a good Mm. analogy. Laurie aims to be the uh, the arch software engineer. (laughs) The more they know about it and the more they understand the magic, the more they're concerned and afraid of using it in a way. And it's probably true for developers as well. Right. (laughs) And I I think there was a a bit of a difference between Ged and some of his peers. He seemed to have a very strong natural affinity for magic, but people like Vetch could work through university, essentially. Peas get degrees and they they pass it (laughs) (laughs) and become the local sorcerer. Ged wasn't book shy either. He really like no. turned the pages at certain stages of the book to learn all about the history and all the true names of things that he subsequently used. I think that's the, that first nice, really, really nice transition of his character is from rash and overconfident and cocky, getting smacked down by 
the shadow and coming coming back to a more studious way of life. Definitely. And it was maybe because it was show and not much dialogue in there, it's harder to follow that transition. Or not harder to follow it, but if you're skimming and not enjoying the story so much, it might have seemed like everything was just happening again and again in an episodic sort of way. But it did, for me anyway, it was a nice progression, a nice arc of his development. I really enjoyed the way the ocean was so well integrated into the story. It was like a character unto itself <laughs> and it's where Ged found comfort at certain times and Brie found discomfort at all times. <laughs> <laughs> I've already said there wasn't a lot of dialogue. I would have enjoyed a bit more dialogue. but I agree with you, know, you on that. It was pretty devoid of humour and that's unusual for me to enjoy a book that's so straight-laced, but I thought that was essential in creating the chronicle of history, the way the story was told. So I did enjoy that, although like, if there was some way of getting humour into it, it would have been even better. Through dialogue. Often it's when characters have exchanges between themselves that you can actually get a feeling for who they are and what gets them going. That might have provided a little bit more interest to Jed. Yeah, that's a great point. Normally, I like the dialogue how you just adamantly like, no, damn it, it's, I'm going to show my disparagement for this book. Yeah. <laughs> for you three marges, I'll do it all. <laughs> and the ending felt a tad abrupt. Depending on your history with the book, you might have known or you might not have known what Ged was facing throughout. And if you did have an inkling of what that was, it kind of just came and that was it. The book was done. The nature so of the shadow. Yes, that's right. I really enjoyed it. The writing is just fantastic. You could take any sentence almost in the book and it was just masterfully crafted. It was different and it was amazing. And I'm glad I chose it. Yeah, I've got very similar thoughts, I guess. I thought the fantasy was very solid and the turns of phrase that Le Guin wielded were just so precisely honed as to be rapier sharp. And they could instantly carve image and gravitas in the mind's eye without the waffly bloat that affects so many fantasy books. Some fantasy has amazing characters or stunning settings or brilliant unique systems of magic but they can be quite bloated and really drag out small scenes for chapters. This book by comparison felt really quick, succinct and sculpted almost to perfection and you guys I think both Brie and Keith mentioned skimming how it was difficult to skim and I think that's because there's no 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 I had to skim and oh. then I had to stop and then I had to stop myself skimming so that I would actually read the book. Right. Well, I found it difficult to skim. Like I do that too by accident with a lot of books and I noticed that I wasn't picking up the nuances of a sentence because there was so little fat on them that mm. skipping any of them really messed with the rhythm. So once I slowed myself down and really began to appreciate them, I just loved the wordcraft in there. It was amazing. I can imagine now the enjoyment that you got, Pat, when your librarian was reading it to you because it would lend itself to being read because when you read something aloud, you listen to it and you take it in a little differently to when you're powering through a book at times. Absolutely. I think this is the type of language and the type of writing that demands to be read slowly and enjoyed and turned over because it is so well crafted it's so finely balanced and it was almost like the spoken word put together in almost the most perfect way possible and Ursula Le Guin is just infinitely quotable for that reason she has so many beautiful wonderful turns of phrase that just glisten on the page and I think if you're just trying to power through to get the gist of the meaning then you're really missing half of the enjoyment of what she writes and across all all her work not just the Earthsea Quartet. Mm, I agree. 
I don't know that I meant skimming so much as speed reading, and sometimes mm. there's a difference. Skimming, you just take in a few words, whereas speed reading, you're just trying to whoosh through and read the whole sentence. But either way, I, I couldn't really do it without uh, slowing down and enjoying the sentences. There were so many little moments of quiet wonder to enjoy in the book as well. Like Sparrowhook finds himself at the School of Magic. It's a big, scary new place. It's intimidating. There's some unfriendly encounters with a bully, etc. And we get to this moment. Pat, would you read the section I sent through to you? Uh, Yes. That night, that one? Yeah. It's a bit long, but bear with us for a moment. Was Jasper really a bully? I just thought he was an older kid with a little bit more sense than Jed. No, I think he was deliberately provoking Ged's yeah. pride. Yeah, there was definitely some antagonism there. It wasn't a, it wasn't a restrained, held back, more sense kind of thing. It was quite aloof and provocative. Smugness. Yeah. yeah. But, but but Ged was not without fault in it either. He, right. he clearly was at least fifty percent of the problem in that relationship, mm. and he sought to to overthrow Jasper like through pride and overconfidence in his own ability to to master magic. I wanted to show off his skill, and he spends the rest of the novel paying for that essentially. Mm. In any event, Ged uh, arrives to the school, and this is the quote that Laurie set aside. That night, as he lay wrapped in his cloak on the mattress in his cold, unlit cell of stone, in the utter silence of the great house of Roke, the strangeness of the place and the thought of all the spells and sorceries that had been worked there began to come over him heavily. Darkness surrounded him. Dread filled him. He wished he were anywhere else but Roke. But Vetch came to the door, a little bluish ball of wear-light nodding over his head to light the way, and asked if he could come in and talk a while. He asked Gerd about Gaunt, and then spoke fondly of his own isles of the East Reach, telling how the smoke of village half-fires has blown across that quiet sea at evening between the small islands with funny names, Corp, Cop and Holp, Venway and Vemish, Ifish, Coppish and Sneg. When he sketched the shapes of those lands on the stone of the floor with his finger to show Ged how they lay, the lines he drew shone dim as if drawn with a stick of silver for a while before they faded. Vetch had been three years at the school and soon would be made sorcerer. He thought no more of performing the lesser arts of magic than a bird thinks of flying, yet a greater, unlearned skill he possessed, which was the art of kindness. That night, and always from then on, he offered and gave Ged friendship, a sure and open friendship which Ged could not help but return. See, that was just delicious. I could read paragraphs like that forever. In the naming of the islands and that sort of thing, the sibilance and the consonants or whatever, whatever the word that I'm aiming for, uh, it, it just flows so nicely and it's, it's clearly structured at least 50% for the narrative and for the world building and 50% for the joy of reading and alliterating. There's one more section I wanted to have read. Thanks, Pat. Um, that that I I really loved. After being beaten, broken and coward by this dread shadow, Ogion, his master, advises his young student to face his fears. And I could almost hear the swelling crescendo of some John Williams music (laughs) as I read this passage. (laughs) I've got this quote down as well, so this will be good. In the cold dawn when Ogion woke, Ged was gone. Only he had left in wizardly fashion a message of silver-scrawled runes on the hearthstone that faded even as Ogion read them. 
master, I go hunting. Yeah. Oh, man. I, get, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I guess you need to be on the, the journey to appreciate quotes like that, but it was hair-raising <laughs> stuff, and the hero's journey was. was just a grueling but rewarding. I felt fear and anger at the character's failures and cheers when he stood his ground and, and won, and that quote sort of really hit home for me. But you too, Keith, it huh? did. Yeah, definitely. I highlighted on the Kindle and I put a little note there and my note was, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a beautiful crescendo because up to that point, Ged has either been overconfident and brash in his confrontation of problems, just throwing himself in heedless of consequence, or he has been fearful and afraid and essentially running and hiding and that really marks the turning point where he says, no, I'm going to set out and I'm going to embrace the, the consequences of my action, of my flawed personality, and I'm going to attempt to rectify it in a, in a mature, knowledgeable, hopefully more successful way. It's, it's a really nice combination. That is the transition to adulthood that these kind of young adult books really thrive on, I think. I did have a question for you all because I have an answer that I want to see if any of you will pick. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's a pretty long shot. Is there a way this book could be improved by modern technology? Like think about all of the options we have open to us in terms of iPads and computers and eBooks and all that kind of stuff. Is there anything that you would invent to make this book more fun? A device in the world or? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I think it's achievable using current technology. So if they, to have something within the world to what, like make kids no, 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 no. easier? to so, make Something in our world to make our reading of the book more enjoyable. Oh, so. I see. Uh, <laughs> I can't. A John can't Williams score, you've already talked about. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a good one. But no, what I was thinking is that. We're talking some kind of 4D level uh, experience here where <laughs> the wind blows in your hair. Is it a, is it a salt spray mister <laughs> attached to a fan? So as he's on the boat and it's whipping around, you're blasted with the, the salty swell. That's even better. I, I, I end my question there and we move on. <laughs> well, come on, we need to, you need to reveal your. Uh... Well, I we'll thought that Le Guin appeared to be a bit of a cartographic slash geography nerd. And sometimes she banged on a bit yeah. about the places Ged travels through or past, sometimes mm. perhaps with too sparse a description. I'd love to have had a, a, like a map, just imagine like a two-page Kindle, and as I read it on the left screen and I progress through the percentages of the book, that I'd have a little map on the right-hand side that shows him progressing about the islands. Like a red dotted line. Yeah. Indiana Jones style. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. That would be cool. Yeah. And maybe like have little sketches pop up of the islands and maybe the folk on those islands or the plants yeah. or the animals or something a bit like Dinotopia, how they have sketches of the local plant life or, or whatever. Because, yeah, you do travel to a lot of places with him and they're all islands because they live in an archipelago. And I occasionally would look at the names of the places and then flip back to the map and have a look where on the map. Oh, that's where it is. But I would have liked to have a little screen there. Like the Indiana Jones red line is a perfect example where he just travelled about. Amazon, if you're listening, maybe <laughs> give us a call. <laughs> that would work for a lot of fantasy books. They did try that interactive almost book. You could get a few on the Kindle store. I think when they brought out the Kindle Fire, like the colour tab 
e-readers. Yeah. They didn't take off, though. No. <laughs> That's because they didn't think about the map. Minor quibbles aside, I love this thing. It feels like a classic. It has the personality and sweeping metaphors of one, and it hasn't aged for me so much as it has matured in my appreciation. Pat? I don't really have anything else to say, as is my want when we come around to me in the, the final stage. I agree with everything that you guys have said, and I even agree with some of Bree's minor quibbles about it. Uh, but the the language and the and the metaphor and the characterization of Ged is really the star of this thing for me, and it's all done so perfectly, so beautifully, that I can't help but continue to really love this book, and I'm going to progress through and read the following again once I'm done with uh, Robin Hobb's latest, which is a ridiculous 700-page tome and is taking me the term of my natural life to finish. It felt <laughs> like it took no time at all. No, Robin Hobbs, not this one. It, no, seriously, Robin Hobbs felt like it took no time at all. Oh, really? Comparatively. Try the later series because maybe maybe you'll find it a bit more. Is that which one's that? She has. Uh, she finished it. The Fitz, Fitz and the Fool. Yeah, smashed it. Already done. Oh, you've read it. Completely what? smashed it. I've read the whole freaking lot, like all nine hundred and twelve. <laughs> how can you complain about Ged being on a boat? For too long. Spoilers. Time when <laughs> Ged being on a boat for too long a time, which I, I'm not going to transition into major spoilers here. When the third book, um, Fool's Assassin or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. is essentially 700 pages of travel and nothing but travel. Character development. <clears throat> oh. And I would not. I would. What? You just spoiled a. F- I'm joking. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. I can't even comment on that. I'm not sure if it's a spoiler or not. If that gives you sort of any uh, any kind of <laughs> soothing, Laurie. <laughs> that shit is grounds for divorce. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, it, it it is all travel. It is constant exposition. Whereas this was a tight 160 pages. Ged gets in, gets out, comes out a better person. Bing, bam, boom. Perfect book. Thanks, Pat. Scoring was tough this episode. I had real trouble finding inspiration. So seeing as Keith has been a bit lax, I've tapped into one of his favourite fantasy classics, albeit from another medium. What's this book? One star, Grildor, out of place and unwelcome in the genre. (laughs) It's not that bad. It's got a cool. It's got a cool uh, synchronizer. Oh, What's God. it called? Synthesizer. Uh, the I don't know. The universal synthesizer or something. <laughs> yeah. How eighties is that? Two stars. Mechanic. Occasionally rose above, but was pretty naff. Three stars. Teela. Good to have some adventures with, but he's not as banging as the sorceress. Oh man, Teela is banging. Ugh, not as banging. Four stars. He man. Heroic if a little predictable, with not enough slaying. Or five stars, Skeletor, genius, witty, layered and unaging. Are you as baffled by all this as I am, Brie? I've got absolutely no idea what he's talking about. I'm going back to the number of stars and either like NAF or number three. I think I said Brog was NAF, so this one has to go three stars. You gave Brog one star. Oh, well, in that case... 
<laughs> no, it's a solid middle of the road. Teela. Two and a half to three. I can't believe someone has just used middle of the road <laughs> as a descriptor for, for it, this There was a long section in the middle which just doesn't add anything. Except for the growth of the character and the... The, the visiting of, of the visiting to, to the random the desert of... castle, the random desert castle where he doesn't learn anything, and then some more ship before it, and some more shipping afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Skimity skim skim. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I'm going to give it. Well, I can't give it a Skeletor because Skeletor was full of those little quips, those little bits of humour, and this book didn't have those. So I'm going to have to give it a Skeletor minus those lines. So four and a half for me. Patrick? Oh, I was hoping you would go first and I'd be able to ground myself using everybody else's ratings because I'm I'm fluctuating between a, a four and a five. And so maybe for that reason I have to split the difference and rock a 4.5 like Keith. I feel oh. like we need to go back and review what we've given each of the others to help with the is it better or worse than. That's a fool's <laughs> errand. It, it, it never works yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's very in-the-moment scoring. What about you, Laurie? It's five stars for me. I think it's a classic. It's justifiably a classic. The turn of phrase, the language and the wordsmithery in the book is just stunning. And the revelation at the end, the facing of the shadow and the nature of the shadow, I thought was an excellent metaphor. And I enjoyed the journey. Five stars. Thanks for the company, folk. We'll be back soon with another modern blockbuster. Fantasy. Sorry, not sorry. Laurie's pick. It's (laughs) Throne of Glass by Sarah J. Mass. Between now and then, feel free to pipe up with your feedback, suggestions or criticism of unfair scores at Seeking Tumnus on Facebook, Twitter or summon us by looking into a mirror and chanting Wheelhouse three times. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it. You guys didn't tell me how much fantasy would be involved. Right. And look, what a fool I am to have picked a fantasy when <laughs> it's just fantasy everywhere. You're the one who's smashing all the Robin Hobbs spree. Secretly. Secretly. <laughs> and the, she's on to book two of the Darker Shade of Magic series now. <clears throat> anyway, until then, if you're terrified of your shadow... Remember that everything you've ever typed into Google and Facebook could be accessed by governments and organisations with strong enough inclination. But it's probably fine. <laughs> what have we got to hide, right? <laughs> yeah. And keep reading. I'm still seeking Bit of Masters of the Universe trivia, seeing as you uh, crack the crack the seal oh. on that one. Oh, no. <laughs> Keep reading. The, the Masters of the Universe movie. The only person that was in that list, list that was from the movie was Gwildor, because he was out of place. Well, and no, welcome. Well, Teela and the Sorceress and He Man were in the movie as well. Yeah, but I wasn't talking about that movie. Yeah, true. Yeah, you weren't. You can cut this out, but it is coming back. There is a movie. I think it's scheduled for release oh. next year sometime. Oh, Can't my ears are bleeding. They'll no doubt ruin it like they did the Conan movie. And if no one... <laughs> in, you didn't pick the introduction, Laurie? 
my introduction. You didn't didn't hark you back to anything. <laughs> Please. By the time they got to the later stages of the movie, the budget had been blown basically. So they didn't have the budget to hire a voice actor and and recut those scenes if necessary. So the really cardboard acting which Lowe made tribute to calling He-Man plain was uh, non-intentional.